If you'll turn with me to Psalm, uh, this is our last week in the Psalms, um, kind of finishing, uh, late finishing of our summer series uh, through the Psalms with Psalm 47. Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again we we pray and we come before you because we have need for your work in our lives. We have need for your spirit to open our eyes, to see, open our ears to hear, and to unite our hearts to fear your name. Lord, strengthen me, uh, both physically, spiritually, to be clear in proclaiming your word. It's a great privilege to do so, and so I pray for that strength that you can provide, and I give you thanks for what you will do. I pray that you would work in each of our hearts and lives. Encourage us through this word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was March 15th of last year. I preached on Psalm 46. It was a few days after everything started uh, just falling apart, really, and it was a psalm that I believed was highly appropriate for the time we were entering, and none of us had any idea what it would be like. And 18 months later, I think the message of that psalm is still vital and will be for the rest of our lives. One commentator stated in regard to Psalm 46, few psalms breathe the spirit of sturdy confidence in the Lord in the midst of very real dangers as strongly as does this one. In the last verses of Psalm 46, we hear these words. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There's that call to behold what the Lord has done and to be still and to rest in that, to know that the Lord will be exalted, not just in Israel, but in all the earth. And Psalm 47 follows that beautifully. It follows it completely. The the call now, though, is not to be silent, to simply rest in the Lord, knowing that He will be exalted, but it's actually to rejoice in that truth, to celebrate his victory. This psalm is a call to praise. It's issued multiple times, and it's a call to praise because of who the Lord is and what he has done. He has conquered, and he is the reigning king. 
And combined, both of these psalms loudly proclaim the message of this book. Blessed are all who take refuge in the King who reigns. This psalm heralds the news that the Lord is King, that He's King over all the earth. And as I said, we see Him both as conquering and as reigning King. And we are called, we are called to respond in worship. And my desire this morning is that we'll see that but that we'll also see why it matters to us, why this message actually makes a difference for us in the here and now. Now, the text itself is actually pretty clear as to the point it's conveying, but there's, there's not a ton of agreement on how to divide it up. If you look at the NIV, it's got three stanzas. If you look at others, it's broken down into two, and I, I think that there are two major sections, and the question is, whether to end the first at the end of verse 4, where it has the Selah, which seems to be a natural break, or end it at verse 5 as it goes into, in verse 6, another call to worship. I, I approach it kind of in a third way. I end it at verse 4, but I see verse 5 almost as transitional. It's transitional in the progression of the psalm. So we're going to look first at the beginning four verses. Clap your hands, O people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. So how does this text begin? It begins with a command, with a call. Clap your hands, all peoples. Now, there's actually some discussion as to who the all peoples here refer to. Is it all people or the, all the people of Israel? And most actually take the stand that it's all peoples of the earth because of the, the overall theme of, of the psalm. But I think because of verses 3 and 4, it flows better to say that this first stanza is calling the people of Israel to worship. Now, it doesn't change the force of the psalm at all, as it certainly does call all people to worship. And there's most definitely a clear emphasis on the universal kingship of God with phrases like nations and, and all the earth. But it does seem to flow, I think, best that this is calling the people of Israel first, the people of God. But let's turn back to that command. Clap your hands. Clapping the hands, it's it's a response here to the kingship of God. In 2 Kings 11, verse 12, we read, Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king! people respond to this coronation with clapping, with a joyous proclamation. And, you know, we know what clapping is for, don't we? We use it to express appreciation or wonder or awe at at some sort of accomplishment. Maybe it's an academic accomplishment or sports accomplishment or a beautiful piece of music that somebody's performed. We know, we we know, we, we clap to show appreciation. And in our psalm, We see this clapping, though, accompanied with shouts, with loud songs of joy. There's this clear tone, a a clear voice of rejoicing, really. There's excitement among the people at this. Psalm 66, 1 and 2, shout for joy to God all the earth, sing the glory of His name, give to Him glorious praise. Now, the question that should naturally arise for us is why? Why should we do this? Why clap and shout for joy? Verse 2, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. Now, when you see the word for, 
it's signaling to you something. It's signaling to you that there's a reason. Here's the reason given. And here it is because of the nature of who God is. He's the Lord. That is Yahweh. That's the name that's used. It's the covenant-keeping God, the, 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 the covenant-keeping God with His people. And He's also the Most High, far above all others. And, and this, this reality, this truth is there to engender fear of the Lord, reverence and awe and worship. Now, throughout the book of Isaiah, this great prophet, you come across the idea that God is above all others, that all the others are, are idols, they're, they're worthless idols. There's some great uh, language within it of uh, the, the person who takes a piece of wood and he cuts it in half and he cooks his dinner over one half and he carves an idol out of the other and bows down to it. Just this sarcastic, you're an idiot kind of thing for doing that. But in 48, or 46, actually, verses 8 to 11, we read this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I've spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. You see this, remember, remember, because I am God and there is no other. You see, God is unparalleled. He is unrivaled. He alone is God. He is the great king. And that reign of his kingship encompasses everything, every parcel and plot of land or every drop of the sea anywhere. As Abraham Kuyper famously stated, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. He is the king. And verses 3 to 4 give example of his greatness, of his kingship, particularly to God's people, to Israel, that he subdued peoples under them. And he's done that from the earliest stages of the Hebrew people. Deuteronomy 4, verses 37 to 40, it states this, And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God has given you for all time. He subdued Egypt. And with that subduing, one thing to notice is because of who God is and because of what God has done, we're to obey. He's our king. He's in control. We're to keep his statutes and commandments. He's done everything for us, and, and he has given us those commandments for our good. And beyond this, he not only brought the people out of Egypt, but he brought them into the promised land as well, into the land of Canaan. And that's very likely the time the psalmist was reflecting upon. If we turn to Joshua chapter 10, starting in verse 22, we read this. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. 
And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do to all your enemies, will, will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. He'll do this. He'll work this for you. You see, the nations were actually literally under the feet of God's people. He was giving them the land. He was giving them their heritage, their, their inheritance, the pride of Jacob, of Jacob, whom God loved. He had set his love on his people, and he worked for them. It's what the covenant-keeping God does. It's what the, the king does for his people. He works for them. He works for their good. He works to secure it. And folks, that's something that we are able to, it flows out of Psalm 46, to rest in. That God works for his people, and he always has, and he always will. And so then we come to verse 5. What I see is this kind of transitional moment. It's the moment when the Lord ascends. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. It's a victory march. It's, a, it's an ascension. It's a, the celebration of the king. And there's respect and awe at the king. And we, ha we have a bit of this. We understand this, the sound of the trumpet, right? When the, when the Queen of England steps into a, a more formal occasion, what's played? The royal fanfare on trumpet. When the President of the United States steps into a more formal affair, what is played? Hail to the chief. On what? The trumpet. It's played on brass. It's, it's this natural thing. It's, look, who's coming in? And here it's, look who's ascending. Look who's gone up. He's, he's victorious. Shout. Play the sound of a trumpet. Rejoice at all that he's done. Because here is specifically a victory procession. Now, historically, many will point to David bringing the ark of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom, and he brings it up to Jerusalem, and it was brought with great rejoicing and, and sacrifices. David danced before the Lord. In 2 Samuel 6.15, it says, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. The ark, the, the, that physical representation of God among his people being brought up into Jerusalem. And David danced. He sang praises. He rejoiced at the victory of the true king, the true king who had worked that victory for his people. So then you can feel this movement right into verse 6. Sing praises. Sing praises to God. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So here's another call. And it's even more emphatic than what we had in the earlier verses. In one verse, sing praises is repeated four times and then again repeated in the next verse. There's there's an unmistakable urging towards praise. And the great commentator Matthew Henry wrote this. He said, So backward are we to this duty 
that we have need to be urged to it by precept upon precept and line upon line. This intimates that it is very, a very necessary and excellent duty, that it is a duty we ought to be frequent and abundant in. Should not a people praise their God? So, I, you know, the reality is, is I, I think we understand praise to a measure, but we don't necessarily keep the kingship of God before us on a, on a regular basis. We praise many things, but often we are slack in, I hesitate to say duty, but yes, our duty and our privilege to praise God. It's not simply as we gather together on a Sunday morning in corporate worship, but it's certainly not less than that. And listen, it's not wimpy praise. It's to be vibrant. It's to be high-spirited. It's a celebration of who God is and what He has done. How, how can praise of that be anything but engaged? If we grasp who God is, that He's the King of all the earth, that He's ascended in victory, how can that be anything but engaged in our hearts? Now, this is not to say that worship at all times has to be this up and super lively thing, because we still worship God through difficult times, through hard times. We praise Him because He's our rock. He's our strong tower. He's our mighty fortress. But I would say that lively, um, in, in, engaged of the heart and mind, that type of worship is probably to be the norm. And that point of engaging the mind, I think it's important for us to remember. Because this is not calling for you know, just ecstatic and exuberant movement and song that, that just kind of gets caught up in the moment that you can kind of gin up and, and, and you plan how to make it all work so that people feel really good. Because at the end of verse, um, uh, let's see here, it's verse 6. It says, sing praises with a psalm. Now, the word that is translated psalm is actually the word maskal. Now, no one knows exactly what it means, but the root of that conveys the idea of wisdom and understanding and skill. So what it's likely saying is that we sing, we worship with both skill and with understanding. We understand what we are doing. We understand who we are singing praise to. You see, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, and I think he likely derived much of it from this verse. He says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit but I will sing with my mind also. There's not a divorcing of, of emotions from the mind and from, the, from the, the intellect, from knowledge of who God is, the knowledge of the holy. Our praises are to be informed. Again, you see, even mixed in with this, you have the grounding, for God is the king of all the earth. Folks, worship is a response to God. It's a response to truth about God, to understanding who He is and what He's done. Worship is not something to be whipped up, but something that is to be fueled by truth and responded to with vibrancy, with engaged hearts. Now, that doesn't have to mean we're all happy and clappy. 
You can have your heart and mind engaged without necessarily moving your hands. But I dare say sometimes it helps. God has wired us differently, but are you engaged with the heart and the mind as you sing praises to our God? To sing praises to the King who's reigning over the nations, who's seated upon His holy throne. It's not as though He, uh, you know, as we read through this psalm, it's not as though as He has not been Lord and already reigning previously, but in every subsequent victory, every step, He's reigning in a, in a new and different way for us as we understand it. That reign is realized in a new way. And so then we come to verse 9. And I, I absolutely love this verse because it not only speaks to where things are heading, but it's a reversal of the rebellion of mankind. So look back with me to Psalm 2. So if you have your Bibles, just go ahead and turn back. Psalm 1 and 2 serve as introductions to the book. Um, they help set the stage for the entirety of the Psalter. And in Psalm 2, the first, two line, or first three verses... Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, what are they doing? The kings, they're gathered. The rulers of the people are gathered together, saying, We want none of you. Get away. Stay away. We want none of you. We want to be autonomous individuals. We want to do our own thing. We want to build our Tower of Babel. We want everything we want. Stay away. But in our text in Psalm 47, what do we see? We don't see the rulers and the nations in out-and-out rebellion against the Lord with a desire to cast off His rule, because now we actually see them gathered gathered to worship, not to plot in vain, not, not to plot in a way that the Lord laughs at them, but in a way that the Lord delights in them. They now gather with a different designation than really what we could say is mocker and fool for revolting against the King of Heaven, the God who spoke the, the universe into existence, the one who's all-powerful and ever-present, You see, now they are gathered as the people of the God of Abraham. And something I think is very important for us to see, it doesn't say the princes of the people are gathered with the people of the God of Abraham. Right? It says the princes of the people are gathered as the people of the God of Abraham. They've actually become sons and daughters of the living God. They've come in submission and in delight in who God is. But that picture described in verse 9, it's really a picture that calls for hope, for um, kind of faithful imagination 
a faithful belief because it's not yet true. We don't see all the princes of the people gathered as the people of the God of Abraham. There will be a time when that is filled, fulfilled, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, when the reign of Christ will be recognized by all, but it has begun. It began with his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. I remember there's a, a song from a, a band I, I knew years ago that one of the lines in it was, um, the cross is the place of your coronation speech. How different is that from anything else we would ever think? Could you imagine a king or a president standing up making a, their inauguration address or their coronation speech um, all beat up and bloodied? But there was the place of Christ's coronation speech. It was there that the Lord defeated sin that the wrath of God for the sin of his people was poured out. But yet, the, the powers of evil are still active, and, and, and we so, so, so then we look with anticipation when that day will truly come, when there will be no more rebellion, when there will be no more tears, and no more pain, and no more heartache when the king has returned to judge the living and the dead and to bring all his people together, to gather his sheep, to gather his children together for all of eternity. Yet we do start to see some of that coming together even now. The coming together are the peoples from all the nations into the people of the God of Abraham. It's that fulfillment, the starting of the fulfillment of Genesis 12, 3. The covenant with Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and the, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, if we, if we flip to the, the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 2, and take some time and read that, really 11 through 22, you see this whole idea of the preaching the gospel to those who are far off and to those who are near. And it says that the Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. They are the people of the God of Abraham. And this comes because our Lord is king. He's executed the office of a king the shorter catechism we went through, the larger earlier, the shorter, question 26, how does Christ execute the office of a king? It's just maybe a little easier to remember. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us. Like, if you want someone defending you, are you going to opt for the guy who's omnipotent and omnipresent and all-powerful? You know, or some scrawny little dude? Or really, a nation that might call itself a superpower, but the Lord, if they rebel against him, sits in heaven and laughs. The king rules and defends and restrains and conquers all his and all our enemies.
It's a beautiful truth to rest in. And that office comes along with prophet and priest, with prophet as he speaks truth, and and priest as he gave himself to defeat the enemies of sin and death. So folks, as we come to this psalm, it's a celebration of the kingship of God, the kingship of Christ, and it actually matters in the here and now. It matters that our God is sovereign, that He's in control. It matters that He has conquered and that He will finally conquer. Just think about it. If He's not sovereign, if He does not reign, what hope do you have for the future? If He's not unrivaled, if He's not God and there is no other, what hope do you have? None. This church is called Living Hope because we have a living hope. It's kept in heaven for us, unperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What hope do we have for true justice to be done? What, what would give us any ability to rest like Psalm 46 calls us to, to be still and know? Know that I am God? Well, if you're not all-powerful, if you're not sovereign, that doesn't give me a whole lot of hope. But he is king. He is the king of all the earth. The shields of the earth belong to him. But we do have that hope. We do. We may not always think about it. (laughs) We may not always rest in it, but we do have that hope. And in that hope, we long for others to be a part of a life of hope. So part of our response to this psalm is hopefully a longing in our hearts to see others come to know the gospel and the freedom of that hope. So let us share that gospel of grace with exuberance. Let us exude shouts of joy as we think about our King Because just as Joshua led the people into the promised land of Canaan, the greater Joshua, Jesus our Lord, will take us to himself and lead us to the greater promised land, to the full and eternal rest, eternity with our Lord. So folks, because he's king, because he's sovereign, we have confidence. We can rest and we can most certainly rejoice. We are people who know that the enemies of God, the enemy of his people, will be subdued. And we will be brought in. Jew and Gentile alike, the nations will gather as the people of the God of Abraham. We will worship that king. We will be moving to that happy place where we will be forever blessed. So folks, let us live a life of rest and hope in that and a life of rejoicing in our King who reigns. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to see this truth more and more. May the truth of your sovereignty fill us, strengthen us, encourage us, empower us. And may we respond even now with great rejoicing as we worship the King all 
glorious above. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.